This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast, part of the Seneca Network from the China Project. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I'm your host, Jared Turner, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, longtime resident of China. And eyelashes are meant to keep things out of your eyes, yet 95% of the time, when something gets in your eye, it's an eyelash. My co-host is John Passon, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese grammar wiki, Sinosplice.com, and he loves cats, but he can't eat a whole one. Learning Chinese has been likened to climbing a mountain. In this episode, we discuss a learning framework that'll give you a new perspective on stages of growth to help you from the base to the summit of learning Chinese. Guest interviews with John Gordon, who went from English education to hosting TV shows in China. Let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner joining you from beautiful Utah up in the mountains. Hi everybody, I'm John Pazin. I am still in Shanghai, China. How's it going? John, you ever getting out of that place for uh, any trips or anything this, uh, this oh, year? Oh, the trip home to the U.S. is long overdue. I'm going to go see family in Atlanta, so I'll be in the U.S. in July. Oh, that'll be great. Well, welcome yeah, back. First return to the U.S. post-COVID. Ugh, can't wait. I bet, I bet. Well, it'll be good to have you back here, even if I don't see you while you're here. It's a big country, yeah. Okay, so today's topic is one that should be quite familiar to teachers. This is something that I studied in grad school for applied linguistics. Um, this, is this is something that language teachers often are very familiar with when it comes to uh, setting objectives, planning courses. But it's also something that individual learners can use as like a lens a way of looking at their studies and getting some more insight. So what I'm talking about is this framework known as Bloom's Taxonomy. Yeah, John, you know, this is something that when I had first learned about it, I, I was in grad school uh, as well, I guess. And uh, it, it was almost like a revelation. It was, it was something that I thought was really interesting, captivated my attention. And I think it's kind of exciting to unpack this a little bit and see how it applies specifically to language learning and anyone out there learning Chinese. Okay, so this thing has been around for a long time. It came out in the 50s. Benjamin Bloom oversaw the creation of this thing. And it's also undergone some uh, revisions over the years. So we're going to be talking about the most recent one. I think it's the most straightforward, the easiest to understand. And so let's get into what it is. And John... What does taxonomy mean? Okay, so it's not for your taxes, Jared. It is a system of classification. You know, think of like naming all the animals in biology. In this case, it's classification for types of learning. That's right. And so Bloom's taxonomy is specifically, it's kind of a classification for like different levels of thinking, comprehension, and cognition. Right. So today we're going to talk specifically about cognition because that's what most people are talking about when they're talking about the levels of Bloom's taxonomy. And as you're listening to this, you can think about how this applies to not just obviously learning a language, but really anything that you're learning and other things that we do and skills that we develop in our life. So, all right, without much further ado, let's jump right into this. So the bottom level, okay, this is the, the base of the pyramid. And in fact, if you do Google this, you'll see a lot of images of like of a pyramid. So there's kind of like lower levels of thinking, cognition, and then higher levels. So the one on the very bottom is called remembering. So it's kind of like recognizing, recalling information. So this is just kind of like basically acquiring something that's just data, just memorization. So you can know something, and that is kind of considered the base level 
of Bloom's taxonomy. Right. These are just facts. And you do need to do this. You can't just jump to the top, right? You got to stop at the base level and you got to remember the information. Okay. So number two, going up one, there are six levels total, by the way. So number two is understand. So you understand the, the basic concepts. You can put them in your own words. You can recognize them. So it's a little bit better than just remembering the facts because you can put them in your own words, right? So you're going up a little bit in complexity in terms of cognition. So the third level is applying. So this is specifically, all right, now you memorize things. You collected some information. You understand, you know, how it can be used uh, and, you know, how it fits into things. But applying is now, okay, it's... It's applying that knowledge, right? It's 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 but specifically on this level, it's it's just more. It's a little bit more about using that information in a new way. So it's it's kind of bringing it bringing it all together and kind of comprehend it. Okay, you understand how it's applied. Well, then go ahead and apply. It. Go ahead and use it, right? And and these first three ones, so the remembering, understanding, and applying. I know, in, John, in the old model, they were kind of considered this is the lower level of you know thinking, if you will. Uh, I think in the new model, it's not. I mean, there's kind of lower to higher levels of thinking, but they don't necessarily classify those bottom three. Just say these are the low levels. Um, but but yeah, those are kind of like the base things that you need to know to really kind of develop you know, knowledge and skill and proficiency in something. Well, I think these three levels are also useful in terms of just, you know, if I want to do something in a language, it's often just, you know, remember the words and the grammar, uh, you know, the pronunciation. I understand how it works. And then I say something, I apply it. Right? So just the very basic communication, it's these three levels. Well, John, I mean, yeah, that that's a language right there is, okay? I can remember the words. I understand what they mean, and, and I can use them. I can speak. You know, isn't that enough? You know, especially for learning Chinese. Do I, what else do I need, really? Well, if you want to get a little more complex in your thinking, in your learning, in your use of language, then you can move on to number four, which is analyzing. So if you're going to analyze, you're going to be able to break things down. You can you can compare them. Um, you can distinguish between uh, you know different types within some category. So analyzing is definitely more complex than just applying. Yeah, John. I think at this analyzing stage, this step four here, it's also one of those points where you understand the language well enough that you start to really ah, understand some of the differences between your own native language. And Chinese, uh, you really begin to like. Sometimes at this point, you're you're really dissecting, you know, like maybe characters or something, and and understanding some of the more nuanced aspects of the language that aren't readily apparent to you at earlier stages. But that leads us also to the fifth stage, which is evaluating. Okay, and at this level, it's more of like learners. They're able to critique. They're evaluating their own use of the Chinese and of other people. I mean, obviously, we always self-critique. We always think it's never good enough. But, you know, at this point, it's a little bit more objective. You have a better grasp of the language. You have a better understanding of how everything works. And so, you know, this is something, oh, uh, when you speak, sometimes you're like, oh, I know I said that wrong, right? And so you're able to, oh, you're kind of almost sometimes evaluating in real time. You can go back and, you know, correct yourself. You can also maybe analyze and understand the quality of different texts and, and critically analyze those as well. So it's evaluating is actually, um, you know, it, it's a skill that's kind of developed to be able to make judgment calls on it. You know, what is correct, but it's not just what's correct. Maybe it's sometimes what is appropriate for different situations. 
right? So it's definitely more critical. You can criticize, you can judge, you can maybe prioritize. So it doesn't have to be exactly evaluating, but it is this level of thinking and it's definitely more meta. Okay, so then that leads us to the final highest level of Bloom's taxonomy, the most complex, and that is creating. You're designing stuff, you're adapting, you're, you're developing you know, your own ideas. Um, you might be modifying, collaborating with other people, but you're using language in this case to, to create new stuff. And to be able to do that, that is definitely the highest level and it's going to involve the other skills as well, but it's going to bring it all together to create something new. And, you know, creating is perhaps the most difficult aspect of really life, you know, of, of all the things we're trying to do. Uh, creating is not an easy task. I mean, you can obviously get better at it and specifically in different types of things you're creating. But, you know, think about it the first time you've tried a new recipe or something. You know, maybe that's really slow or difficult. You don't get it right. Uh, but... With creating, you know, in the language, as, as John's pointing out here, it's more than just being able to speak, you know, and they say create language. This could be things such as, you know, obviously writing essays, but more like delivering a presentation. So you're pulling together all this information and you're creating this something new. It's maybe participating in some sort of debate. Maybe it's actually writing a joke, you know, that hopefully is funny. Uh, so there, there's a whole lot of aspects here in creating, which really can make it uh, a challenging task. But very rewarding at the same time. Yeah, I remember when I was um, still living in Hangzhou and I was improving my Chinese quite rapidly, working quite a lot on my Chinese. I'd never heard of Bloom. Well, maybe I'd heard of it, but anyway, I wasn't too familiar with Bloom's taxonomy at the time. But I remember thinking, all right, my Chinese is all right. I think I want a new challenge. I'm going to create some dialogues. So I'm going to I'm going to write in Chinese a dialogue between two Chinese people. And I'm going to try to make it as native-like as possible. And then I'm going to show it to my teacher and we'll talk about it. And at the time, my, my Chinese was okay, but let's just say I was skipping from the applying, you know, stage three, all the way to the top creating when I hadn't done a whole lot of the, the analysis, the evaluation, those other, you know, higher uh, complexity uh, things. And my teacher, I remember her feedback was just like, oh, this is interesting. Like there were just so many problems. And so it was it was really useful for me because I realized, you know, that I had some weaknesses I wasn't aware of. But um, thinking back on it, I really did try to jump so fast all the way to the top and just create without having those those skills in place. Well, you've come a long way now, John. I mean, look, now we have Mandarin Companion. We're creating books in Chinese. With the help of some great Chinese teachers. Yes, we are. But, um, but the point is, um, these they build on each other. That's why everyone likes the pyramid, right? You don't, um, you don't skip the part in the middle when you make a pyramid. You keep building all the way up. You know, and honestly, John, this is something that I learned uh, when I was getting into, when I was in my grad school, I realized that, you know, if, you, if you're looking at an educational program, and I think this is also really instructional and enlightening for anyone out there who's maybe talking to tutors or looking for programs, you know, for language learning. And this also depends on the level that you are and what you're trying to achieve in the language, is that if you have a program with, at the very lowest levels, they're just going to be focused on those lower level learning. Um, once you get uh, higher levels of proficiency in Chinese, that you need to then look to step those up. 
and look towards those higher levels of thinking and cognition where you're actually starting to you know analyze and evaluate and create something um, and if you need to look for appropriate programs that may push you to do that because I know then higher education you know a lot of the times these days you know they're like saying okay well this is the formula you need to learn but you don't need to memorize this you know you can go look this up anytime we need to understand how this is works and how it works in the real world and then understand how all these things fit in and then how you can use it to you know create something right so that that's really uh, where things are these days because the access to information can be immediate uh, so we may not always need to memorize all these facts and figures like perhaps we did in, in yesteryear. Yeah, and you can see how Bloom's taxonomy comes into play for things like um, tests. So if you look at a test, and it's just mainly recall, like testing your knowledge of just words, then then that's, that's at the, like, the remember stage. And it's got to be a pretty well-designed test and maybe a pretty complex test to really be testing the the higher levels of your abilities. So if you're doing a Chinese course and maybe the end of it is some, some kind of project where you create something, then you can really feel that the teachers are applying this hierarchy of cognition that, that we see in Bloom's taxonomy. But if it's all just test-based and recall, well, then that's just the old memorization style and it's all kind of lower level. And that's a really good point. I think that's a great way to sometimes evaluate a program that you're looking into because, frankly, it's easiest to do those just, you know, memorization. You know, do you remember what this character is? That's the easiest test to create. It's harder for a teacher to go on and create some of these and organize and design these types of projects that you're mentioning, John. And it's harder for the learner, but but that challenge is what makes it interesting. So it's one of those things that, uh, you know, you put a lot of effort in, yeah, those things can generate a lot of return as well. So th- I think that's the great thing about Bloom's taxonomy. It's a, it's a great framework for us to evaluate, you know, where your efforts are being put, uh, evaluate where you are, and perhaps also might create a framework for you to help you understand, hey, what level do I really want to achieve in the language? You know, if you're, hey, you just want to be, uh, talk to the uh, you know, the person down the street or the at the shop, you know, maybe you don't need to really reach into some of these higher levels of Chinese. But if you want to pursue a career where you're using Chinese, you know, for work purposes or, you know, creating things, you know, that you definitely need to make sure you're thinking about these higher levels of cognition in the language. Okay, so if you're new to this idea of Bloom's taxonomy, you might want to Google it or chat GPT it. Uh, another useful thing to check is uh, Bloom's taxonomy verbs. That's something that teachers use a lot. Like they, they use specific verbs to address the different uh, t- cognitive levels. Um, but um, we hope this is useful for you. And uh, remember, this is just one more thing that can help you in your toolkit and you can learn Chinese. All right, John, we have got a few listener questions. So let's go ahead and kick into those. All right, this comes from a listener's comment on YouTube for episode number 80, Games for Learning Chinese. So this is by listener Hart, and it looks like they have a a chubby lion or something as an avatar. I'm not sure who this is. Anyway, it's just a, I'm going to guess that she says, I really enjoyed this episode. I'm an avid gamer, and I've been trying to incorporate learning when playing games, though I mostly play video games rather than card or parlor games. I've been using the Chinese audio in one of the games I'm playing right now, and I find that repeatedly hearing specific phrase can help me to remember that phrase. I've definitely learned a few Chinese slang from just reading the chat in online multiplayer games. I think gamifying language learning can be really successful because it's so fun. I love the interview with Martina Fuchs 
and she how she talks about how language has impacted her life. And it's amazing how quickly she was able to pick up Chinese. I agree with her advice to keep practicing during those 15-minute train rides every day. And I find that filling that time can be especially beneficial during a busy day. I would love to learn more about video games in Chinese specifically since I think they're accessible for anyone and it can be a really useful tool for communication. When I'm in an online multiplayer game and if one of my teammates speaks Chinese, I feel too shy to speak up and practice with them. But I really want to. What would be the best thing for me to do in this scenario? Are there any Chinese video games you guys recommend for practicing, reading, or speaking Chinese? All right, so first of all, when it comes to speaking up, it's going to be really hard if every time they're saying something different and then you have to figure out what they're saying and then figure out how to reply, that's probably not going to work too well. So I think for this, it really helps to do a little bit of prep. If there are certain situations where they, they frequently say something in Chinese and it's kind of along the same lines, then you can prep for that, right? You can think about what have they said before? What might they say in the future? What is that Chinese? And then what am I going to say in response? And if you have a Chinese teacher, then they can help you. If not, you can still do a lot of stuff on your own. Maybe look up some words, think of some things you might want to say, you know, find sample sentences in Pleco or look up online stuff. You can definitely find uh, words and phrases that are short that you can just throw in. And that's, it's important to do just that, I think, first, because you, what you're doing is you're signaling to the other people that, hey, I do speak some Chinese and I want to use it with you. And I'm not going to, you know, try to make a speech but I'm just going to use a few things here or there and just get the ball rolling that way. Yeah, and I think specifically in her case there, she's got some teammates, you know, you're, you're on the voice chat or whatever in your game and they're speaking some Chinese. I think what actually be great is just start throwing a word out there. I think sometimes we get a bit intimidated saying, oh, they're speaking Chinese, therefore I need to speak all Chinese. No, hey, just get started. Just like kind of dip your toe in the pool, really, you know, so... You know, throw a word out there. You know, in in this, you start learning some of these specific words to gaming. Like, John, I I don't know what, what's what's the word for headshot. You know, in Chinese. I don't play FPS games. Well, there you go, John. A lot of help you are. But anyway, so you know, but you can start figuring out what those words are. You may have asked, and I guarantee you, I bet. Well, I wouldn't guarantee you, but I think it's more likely than not if you've got guys that are playing, you know, these multiplayer games and they're on the voice chat and they're speaking Chinese, they probably also speak English. So it's one of those things you start learning, picking up some of the words, start peppering it in there. And once you get a little more comfortable with some of these new words, you know, the gaming terms or whatever, then you start throwing them in. And maybe, you, you know, it's a great way to start practicing. And maybe, maybe you're not really having great long conversations, but you're using Chinese. And if you're enjoying it, then, and you're learning something, you're building some proficiency, then yeah, win. Yeah, and she says teammates, so I think it's good to just kind of start small and just build your way up from there and see how it goes. And for listeners out there, do you have any games that you recommend for learning Chinese? Specifically, I would say like, you know, video games, PC games, things like those. Yeah, I've definitely seen a few comments like on blogs and stuff or maybe on YouTube videos, but I don't have any personal experience in that. Yeah, me neither. I I've actually kind of I kind of have to give up games here and there, John, because they consume my life otherwise. Yeah, I've been hearing a bit of that over Tears of the Kingdom. Yes, my son's got that now. But if you have got a game you would like to recommend that you say, hey, there's a lot of people here who speak Chinese or maybe, you know, that would fit this scenario, hey, leave us a note in the comments or on YouTube or send us an email and we'd love to share that. Okay, and here's another question from YouTube from Vedant M. 
John and Jared's advice is that musical ability can potentially help learners identify tones better, but it shouldn't be the deciding factor on whether or not you should start learning Chinese. One question that I still have is, are there specific instruments that give learners more of an edge? Okay, so I'm not a musician, but I, I, I would say no. Jared, anything to add there? Not, not, I don't think there is an instrument that would give you an edge. I think if anything, it was actually probably more singing might give you an edge as opposed to actually playing an instrument. Uh, that's a good point. Also, drums, probably less useful. Yes, yes, maybe. Unless you kind of get the pattern, the beat of the language, you know. But, uh, yeah, I don't really think a, a specific instruments would give you an edge because... But I think overall is... And, and this is one of these things, too, is that, like, you can casually play an instrument, but uh, I think, you know, what's getting to the music theory is probably something that might help you a little more. I'm, I'm just... I'm just... This is... I'm just pulling this out of my head. But, I mean, listening to the music as a musician is going to help your ear so that's got to help at least a little bit and then like jared's saying voice is going to help you with tone pitch so that should also be useful but it shouldn't be like the major factor in a decision to learn chinese right that's right well john i guess you don't have to learn how to play accordion anymore but i want to All right, now it's time for a word from our sponsor. Today, our sponsor is Mandarin Companion Chinese Graded Readers. These are easy to read Chinese novels for you. And today, we're talking about Charles Dickens' classic, Great Expectations. Right, this is a level two novel in two parts. So, level two means 450 basic Chinese characters making up this entire story. And when you put together two books, that's a pretty long, fairly basic story you can read entirely in Chinese. It's a great story. So we took it out of Victorian England, and it is now placed in more modern day-ish Shanghai. And uh, it follows the story of Pip through uh, his coming out of poverty to his vast wealth and then his fall and tw- plot twists all along the way. But it's uh, this whole romance with uh, the beautiful Bing Bing, as we have in the story. She's cold. She's indifferent. But um, this is a good story. You will not be indifferent when you read it. So you can go out and get it today. It's on Amazon, iBooks, Kobo, or wherever you get your books. Great Expectations, a Mandarin Companion, level 2, 450 characters, Chinese graded reader. Check it out. Let us know what you think. All right, now it's time for rants and raves. John, what do you have for us today? Do you have a rant or do you have a rave? I have a rave, and um, it's kind of it's a little bit of a cop out because it's about food again. I, I know I've done food many times, but you know, food is one of the great pleasures of living in China, and um, I've always been a a fan of the potato. You know, my family is half Irish, half Polish, so we're all potato fans, and. Uh, China, like, they don't really emphasize potatoes for the most part. Um, I feel like a lot of Chinese cuisine sees the potato as not worthy of the, the great dishes. But, man, there's some good dishes. So there are the, uh, you know, the uh, spicy sour potato strips, suan la and that's really good. But there's also mm. this other one, which is especially good, and I have a picture of this and an old blog entry on Sinosplace, my blog. And it's called Jiaoyan Tudou. And so literally, 
it's uh, salt and pepper potatoes. But if, if you also add a little bit of um, hot pepper or maybe just some like, uh, you know, yellow, red, green pepper, um, it is so good. And if you go to China, and I know you're all coming over now that COVID's over. If you, I, I'm coming, John. You should try this dish. Um, you can get it in a fair number of restaurants, maybe not every restaurant. But if you like potatoes, this is the one to get. And we'll put a link in the show notes so you can see what this looks like because it is mouthwateringly delicious, and you can tell by the picture. I got to say, my favorite is the tudo nyo ro, over the, the la mian, so, you know, the Meat and beef and potatoes on the pulled noodles. That, that, that That's my favorite. All right. I guess I'm just kind of old school that way. Okay, so potatoes. Jared, what do you got? Rant or rave? John, I have got a rant. So I don't do a lot of rants, but so this one's a, this one's a big one. So I, I came across this uh, article uh, the other week, and its title says, um, it, it's an, an article from uh, Arizona, and it says some some schools accused of illegally teaching dual language programs. And so what this article is explaining about, there's the, the state of Arizona here in the United States. They have uh, the state superintendent is cracking down, saying these, some of these schools are doing uh, dual immersion programs illegally. Evidently, because uh, from what I understand, I looked into this a little deeper, they have Spanish dual immersion there. And they have a lot of native Spanish speakers. There's a lot of immigrants, uh, you know kids from immigrant families who grew up only speaking English and they I mean, grew up only speaking Spanish and they need to learn English. And so what they're doing, it seems like in this dual immersion program is that they are putting, uh, you know, native English speaking kids and native Spanish speaking kids in the same class. Now, this concept is not new. It's called two-way immersion. And it's actually proven to be very effective uh, at kids, both kids learning both languages. Because you kind of have this thing, okay, let's just think in this situation, you know, you have English-speaking kids and Spanish-speaking kids. Well, if they want to communicate, they need to essentially learn each other's languages to do so. And you also have native speakers to kind of help with. And so you get the opportunity to practice in, in, you know, in different scenarios. So it's actually quite effective. But the state superintendent is cracking down and says, it's, it's illegal. You can't do this because evidently there was a provision that was passed, uh, I think, about... Uh, 20 years ago in the state saying that all children in Arizona public schools shall be taught English by being taught in English and all children should be placed in English language classrooms. So he's saying that they can't go and into these Spanish programs until they have become proficient in English. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh, this is so short sighted. And, and I think even that there's wiggle room, I think in that provision, uh, you know, that live in uh, the voters passed some 20 years ago to say, oh, hey, this is OK. You know, having the two lane, two way uh, immersion programs. But evidently uh, the guy is I don't I don't know. He's got some very strong political opinions. But this is something I found as I've worked in education is that you have teachers who, who work in these dual immersion programs or language uh, programs. But the administration often and unfortunately all too frequently does not really understand language immersion, does not really understand language, uh, you know, language instruction and learning, and they just kind of insert their opinions and, and screw some things up. So that's my rant. As you can see, I'm a little pa- bit passionate about this stuff. But uh, Man, so if the kids are actually learning and everything is actually working and then it's get, it gets shut down, that's pretty horrible. It is pretty horrible. And so pretty much what they're saying is that we're just going to pull the funding. If you guys don't stop it, we're going to pull the funding from 
whatever schools are doing this, you know. I imagine the teachers are doing some really creative, interesting stuff too. Yeah. And I think ultimately at the end of the day, hey, you know, we, we they like to evaluate on tests. Well, how are they doing on the tests, right? Or is their English improving? You know, how's that benchmarking versus, you know, other kids, you know, who are learning English but aren't in these, you know, two-way dual immersion programs. Mm. But that's that's assuming that data might actually change their minds. Big assumption, Jared. This interview was first aired on June of 2020. I hope you enjoy. Okay, we have an interview that we're going to cut to first. John Gordon is my name. I'm from uh, Durham, North Carolina, originally, and I've lived in China since 2002. John, good name. So John Gordon is a friend of mine. I've known him for many years. Uh, We both live in China, although he lives in Beijing and I live in Shanghai. I know that when I first met him, I was aware from the very beginning two things about him. One is that he was high up in a pretty big English language company based in Beijing. You'll find out in the interview how that came to be. And two, that he had been a professional host on Chinese TV, not just because he was a foreigner, a white dude. It's because his Chinese is really good and he has actually a really good voice. Nowadays, he's also doing stuff on WeChat, helping Chinese people learn English, and he takes videos where he's just speaking spontaneously, and the guy just has really, really good Chinese. Like, if not native-like, then pretty darn close. Anyway, very impressive Chinese. So when you come across someone like this, I think it's good to pay attention a little bit to how he did it. Yeah, and he's a great guy. He's got a great story. I really enjoyed uh, spending time talking with him this interview. So let's go ahead and cut to this, and enjoy. Okay, so here's the evergreen question. Why did you start learning Chinese? It was kind of a random occurrence. I was in high school and I'd finished most of the requirements for high school in my junior year of high school. And I saw that there was a study abroad program in China, kind of randomly. The program came to our school and did like an information session. I skipped it. I didn't go to it, but I heard some friends talking about it. And I was in our guidance counselor's office and I saw there was like a little pamphlet introducing this program about study abroad. And it was a program called School Year Abroad. And they had programs in three countries. One was Spain, one was France, and one was China. And my thought was, hmm, it, it would be really fun to go somewhere and have an experience somewhere for my last year of high school. And the France and Spain programs had been going on for like 30 years. They were all two semesters. So it would mean going abroad for all of my senior year. And the China program had just started. And at the time, it was just one semester long. So my thought was, <laughs> if I well, if I went away for a year... I would miss my whole senior year with my friends at school and I would lose all my friends. (laughs) That was my sort of immature high school thought. And then I remember really clearly having the thought of if I go, then worst case, I won't enjoy it and it'll be just a semester. But if I don't go, then it might be something that I regret 20 years down the road. You know, why didn't I go to China? And so I I signed up for the program and started reading a lot of books (laughs) and I got some... (laughs) I, I, I got some tapes. Remember those little foam boxes that tapes used to come in? Not really foam, but kind yeah, of like plastic. Yeah, For all those old guys. Yeah, I know what you mean. The cassette. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and then they had like the plastic that they kind of like clicked in. And so I listened to these Chinese learning tapes in the car for the next few months, sort of as I got ready to go to China and you know, read a lot of books about China. And my thought was, oh, I'll listen to these tapes. And when I get to China, I'll pretty much be okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you'll be I'll speaking be Chinese in no time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I, I thought that I would be fluent in Chinese, but I thought I would. Oh, I would have a good basis, and you know, I'd hit the ground running. 
Um, I think because I'd studied Spanish in high school and had a pretty easy experience with that. Of course, that's basically all gone now. But I, I didn't have any idea that Chinese would be that much more of a challenge. So that was sort of the preparation I did. And then when I got to China, it was actually kind of shocking to realize, ah, I can't, I, I, I can't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to assume you didn't start learning characters at that time either. No, it was just listening in the car. And then, and then when we got here, it was a really great program. School year abroad, we lived in host families and went to the number two middle school attached to Beijing Normal University. And so we had classes at that school with our cohort of foreign students. But we got to meet a lot of Chinese students and play basketball together. And it was a really incredible environment to be in. And the textbooks were horrible. So this was 1997. <laughs> uh, and the textbooks were, it was really just textbooks. <laughs> in the, in okay. other, These were textbooks like for learning Chinese or was it just general no, academic no, class? There were textbooks for learning Chinese. The way the program worked oh. was, it was, I think about half of the courses were two Chinese language classes a day. And then the rest of the classes were in English. So the idea that was that you could study oh, okay. abroad, but still continue your high school curriculum. So we had like English class and we had a Chinese history class in English and we had like environmental science. But the Chinese classes were, the textbook was, maybe there were some drawings, but it was, uh, you know, it was very, wow. very, 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 very rudimentary, rudimentary textbook. And uh, we, we didn't start with characters right away, but pretty quickly we got into characters. So it was, it was sort of speaking and sort of everything all at once. <laughs> the teachers that taught us were, were the English teachers at this Chinese middle school. Most of them had never taught Chinese before, mm. uh, except for at this program. Oh, that, that's a whole other skill, teaching the language as a second language. Teaching a language that you have learned as a second language is one thing. And then teaching your own language, they bring different challenges, I think. It was clear that they hadn't been trained as Chinese teachers, but they mm -hmm. were just wonderful. They were so excited to interact with us and so excited to have the chance to share their language that it was great. And I still keep in oh, touch cool. with them. Wow. Well, what was that like? I mean, you were 17, I'm assuming, you know, moving off to China by yourself. I mean, I'm sure there were some other classmates, you know, people you met there, they're foreigners, but you're living in a Chinese home in a tall Chinese environment. You didn't really speak Chinese, going to a new school. I can imagine that there were some challenging aspects of that. So there were challenging aspects, and there were 40 of us. There were 40 students. And, and I think for some of the students, it, it was very challenging. And some of them had to switch families because they were, I think, really stressed out and having culture shock and missing home. My experience was there were challenges, but mostly it was just so exciting. It was just amazing. China at the time was different than it is now for a foreigner experiencing it for the first time because really everything was different. <laughs> and so being in an environment where you, you, know, you open your eyes in the morning and you didn't have to do anything. And you would learn something new each day, whether it be language or learning about people's experiences, even things like at the time, just there were huge piles of cabbage and just something like that was just fascinating and, and interesting. <laughs> so like the, the, the winter began and inside the school, sort of in the courtyard of the school they were at, there was a several meter high pile of cabbage. And then I don't know if it was right next to it, but in the same sort of courtyard, there was then a several meter high pile of coal. <laughs> and, and over the winter, wow. they slowly sort of went down. Oh, gosh, this is so interesting. This is so different. That, that was what was really overwhelming. You know, what strikes me about this is that they talk about there's different stages of culture shock, you know, and that first stage is like it's the honeymoon phase. And then the next stage is like negotiation. You actually realize, oh, life sets in. It's going to be difficult. And then you kind of like resolve and they say people kind of end up in three different categories. There's kind of like people that kind of reject the culture people who maybe like fully adopt it. And then the cosmopolitan is kind of like you're mixing, you're blending your own culture with the one you're living in. And it sounds like me, like, uh, and I'm assuming you've been in China now 20 years, right? More than yeah. 20. <laughs> you know? Well, so that was high school. And then I came back, I went to Wesleyan in the US for university, but I came back here for a summer and then for junior year at, at Tsinghua. And then I've been out here basically since 2002. 
but I want to hear about this. So like you went home, but it sounds like your whole experience there was made a real impact and impression on you that drew you back. I think probably the strongest thing, maybe two, one sort of abstract thing and one specific thing. I think the abstract thing was just really having my eyes open in the sense of, I didn't, I didn't have any idea about China, but just the sort of, whoa, look, look at this history and look at this language and look at these people and look at this country that is in a very interesting place and, and, and a very exciting place, but also kind of a precarious place. And I was just so interested. I wanted to learn more. It was really only three months there because we, we went just as an aside. We, so we were there for three months and then we went to Vietnam for three weeks and spent three weeks there. Oh, and that wow. sounds kind of the reason that we went to Vietnam was because the head of the program, his brother had died in Vietnam. And so he thought oh, it was wow. very important for young Americans to spend time there. And from that time, Vietnam really wasn't open to the world at that point either. Right. Yeah, yeah. We took a 50-some-hour train from Beijing to Vietnam. And at the Vietnam border, we got there at like 3 in the morning and had, had to get out and bring all our luggage out. One by one, they, they went through our luggage and took all of our CDs. <laughs> but because wow. it was, And it was under the clause of it was harmful to the morality of the country or something like that. They took all of our CDs. Yeah. Um, Contraband. And, and, but it was just one border guard who was doing that. And another border guard sort of told us that, you know, if you just hide it under the bush here, <laughs> some, some people just hid their CDs under the bush. But that was another sort of amazing and, and really eye-opening experience because it was 25 years approaching the anniversary of the Christmas bombings, which was a period in like a very short amount of time when the U.S. dropped more tonnage of bombs on Vietnam than like all of World War II or something like that wow. in, a, in, a, in, wow. in a very short time. But, but back to China, the, I mean, it was just a really visceral feeling when leaving of thinking, oh, I'm definitely going to come back. And I know that whatever I do in the future is going to be somehow related to China. So that was sort of the vague thing. But I think on a more specific side, in particular, the relationship with my host family, and particularly, I think particularly my host brother was really meaningful and sort of connected with that general idea of wanting to learn more or maybe help to push that. He could speak a little bit of English and I sort of slowly was learning Chinese, but it was really sort of the process of us learning about each other and talking about our different countries and that was really a powerful experience. Also from a language learning perspective, he was excited to learn English and he was also excited to help me learn Chinese. And he was just super patient as far as correcting me and sort of working with me. I, I think it was in particular the R sound in Chinese, like, like, Zhang, Zhang. Oh, I, 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 yeah, I that's a, hard. I have a very clear memory of him just very patiently correcting me. And wow. I wanted to make the sound correctly. And so I, I would say it and then he would say no. And then he would say it again. And I would say it and he would say no and he would say it again just again and again and again. And I was just mystified because like I said exactly what you said. But, <laughs> but, but having someone like that who would work with me on that, I think was really helpful. And then also just seeing him wow. as a Chinese student and learning about Chinese, what life is like for Chinese students. We worked very hard in his studies. And also I think he saw that I worked very hard on my studies too, which wasn't the story they'd been told about what American students <laughs> did. But, <laughs> but for him, the pressure that he had to do well was very different from the pressure that I had like from my family. And I remember him, we're in the same room and at night he would pull the cover over his head and have a flashlight and read like, he would read like Kung Fu, Jinyong Kung Fu novels and he would read them and he was, he was so excited, but it was like contraband. It was something that he wasn't supposed to, <laughs> supposed to be doing. And then he would tell me the stories. He would, because <laughs> he, oh, really? he was so excited. Oh, cool. And so he would, which was wonderful and super interesting. At the same time, I also remember being so tired. <laughs> <laughs> and he was telling me this, <laughs> this, this like epic story at like 11 o'clock at night. Wow. That's neat. I mean, it sounds like you guys had a special connection. Yeah. He ended up going to the UK for undergraduate and got his PhD in the US. And now he's back. He's a professor at a university here. Wow. Sounds like a sharp guy. 
So I think the connection to China part was on sort of a broad level, just sort of like almost like a geopolitical level of being like, wow, I, I want to learn more about this. Mm-hmm. And I know that the US and China, their relationship is going to be really important. And I, I want to kind of be a part of it. And then on the other hand, just these personal relationships really making me want to come back. And then in college, I met a girl who was not my wife. That was a strong ah, relationship. Ah, yes. There you go. There you go. So uh, like, when you went back to the States, how long was it before you came back? So I went back, it would have been after the sort of the first semester of that year. So sort of around Christmas time, 1997. The next semester, I took a course at UNC to sort of keep Chinese studies up. And then I went to Wesleyan for university. And then the summer of my freshman year, I came back. I did a program called Princeton in Beijing, which was like an gotcha. intensive language program. So then you moved back to China. So like, what were you doing then? Did you have a job? The first thing I did was I worked for the University of California. Uh, it was called the Education Abroad Program. And so for University of California students who would come to China, taking the students on trips and sort of the study abroad assistant. <laughs> I did that for actually less than a year. I started teaching at New Oriental, which is a big education company. And at the time, it was the thing that everybody did who wanted to study abroad. So they were doing TOEFL and GRE training and other English test prep. This is kind of a funny story, but I think it was when I was still a junior in college studying abroad, and it was really hard to get into classes in New Oriental. And my now wife, her uncle, knew the guy who was the president of the Beijing school at New Oriental. And so he called and asked if he could get an extra seat in the class. Then the president said, sure, so come over and you can pay for the class and I'll also help you sort of cut in line and get into the class. And for some reason, she was busy maybe, and she sent me with the money to go pay for the class. And, I, and so I met the president of the New Oriental School, and we had a brief conversation. It's really absurd. At the end of the conversation, he said, I can make a future for you in China. <laughs> and, <laughs> it's, and I was like, this guy's weird. But we kept in touch, and I actually I wrote an English language learning book, like a book of dialogues while I was a senior in college. And when I came back out, he called me and asked me if I'd be willing to teach courses at New Oriental. And what I ended up teaching was IELTS speaking. And so IELTS is an English language test, which I had never heard of. And I went into this school and I met with the person who was running that program at the school and they handed me a box of tapes, which was another teacher's class. And it was a five lecture series of two and a half hour courses. And they said, okay, you start next week and here's the textbook. And so I had this. Oh, this, wow. I, I had the recordings of another teacher and a textbook. And I was starting next week. And it was, there were like 500 person lecture classes <laughs> teaching, oh, wow. teaching the speaking portions of this test. And so I started doing that and it was, you're like, you know, it was, these poor students. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Well, I, I think I quickly, I quickly got pretty, I quickly did pretty well with it, but I was very naive <laughs> at, 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 at sort of what was involved. So the first round was a little bit rough, but I ended up really enjoying it. And it was an amazing, the most incredible thing was after the class, having conversations with students, because these were students who wanted to go abroad. So they all had these various dreams of things mm-hmm. they wanted to accomplish. And they came from all over the country. So I did that for a few months part-time, and then I ended up doing it full-time for a couple of years. And it was just the most amazing way to meet a huge amount of people from a variety of different backgrounds from all over the country. So it was a really interesting couple of years. I want to hear a little bit about this because, I mean, you ended up starring in a children's TV show right here in China. But you know, I also want to understand about how the intersection of Chinese with teaching and all this stuff. I mean, did that make these opportunities possible for you? And then also, I'm going to hear how, how did this all come about, like you actually being in a kid's show? So the teaching actually was mostly in Chinese, which that was part of the sort of absurdity of it was that it was teaching for this and these test preparation classes for these English 
exams was mostly in Chinese. Being proficient in the language was definitely important for that. And after a couple years of doing that, I, I was actually going to go back to law school. I started auditing classes at a program here. I was going to do that for a year and then apply for law school in the U.S. And I had the idea of you know wanting to support healthy relationships between Chinese and American companies or Chinese and foreign companies. So I was sort of getting ready to do that. And then the guy from New Oriental approached me and a few other people and said he wanted to start a new company. Again, I sort of had the thought of, well, I could go back to school or I could start this company. And even if it fails, I probably would learn more in a year of doing this company, even if I didn't get paid anything than from going back to school. So we ended up starting this company called New Channel. And I ended up doing that for 12 years. Uh, we started with just like an office in, in Beijing and we ended up with more than 100 centers around the country, also doing mostly test preparation. Wow. The general idea was to just do English training, but we ended up doing much better with the test preparation just because of the way that market works. So I did that for 12 years and I sort of started to have people contact me about doing television stuff. My principle was, if I haven't done it and it sounds interesting, I'll try it <laughs> um, because it takes a lot of time. But, and if I like it, then I'll do it again. Otherwise, I won't. But I did one like almost like an, a, like an American Idol type show or something like that where I sang a song on the show and I, I won the like weekly champion for, oh, nice. for the show. Wow. There's some very weird and interesting stories. But that ended with a guy like coming down on a lift, like flying out of the sky with lift and handing me a golden egg. For winning that <laughs> um and uh I, I won't go into too many more stories but, but for that show they just contacted me and they said i would like you to come and participate in the show and i was like well but i don't really i don't really have any particular talent of i mean i could do and they're like well you can sing a song and i was like well i can't really sing very well and they said well we'll teach you we'll teach you sing it's fine and so i had the thought of just well i don't want to not do it because i'm afraid and I, if i have someone teaching me for a few days i can learn how to sing a song and then i got there to the show and I found out it was totally fake. Like they weren't going to teach me. They were going to like film a scene with me with a teacher. <laughs> like, so I would have like five minutes with a teacher and, and then that was it. And so I think I'd dub you over. <laughs> well, I was like, what am I going to do? And, and then, so I just went, I went to a karaoke, I went to a karaoke place just by myself. And I just sang the song again yeah. and again and again for like hours and hours and hours. Oh, and wow. then they didn't want to dub me, but they wanted me to do like a pre-recorded one and then like play that. I didn't feel honest to me. <laughs> and so and, and I didn't do that. But I think part of the reason why maybe I won the like, weekly prize for that was that I was the only one who was actually singing at the show. So so there were two other people who were singing, and then there was a set of twins who did the hula hoop. That was... <laughs> that was oh, okay. <laughs> oh, maybe not the stiffest competition, maybe right? Maybe not the and, and, well, and the other, And the other people who were singing were, you know, were just sort of like very obviously lip syncing. Lip syncing. So and then I ended up somewhat... I had a blog, and so I was blogging in Chinese. And somebody left a comment on my blog and said, we need a host for this show. Are, are you interested? And I replied and said, well, we can talk about it. And it ended up being a show for CCTV4, which is like the international channel. It was a show called like Happy Learning Chinese. It was a really tough decision because I kind of had to leave the company halftime for a couple of years. But the opportunity was to go along the entire coast of China, starting up in Dandong and literally every county along the coast of China doing an episode. And so I ended up doing that for about a year and a half. We did like 370 10-minute episodes, uh, literally every wow. county, <laughs> except we didn't go to Hainan because we didn't go to Taiwan. And if we went to... What? Well, if because we, if we went to Hainan then, and didn't go to Taiwan, it was politically sensitive, right? Because ah. so, so we did the, you know, the coast. We didn't do islands. <laughs> um, gotcha. It was a very strange show because it was the Chinese international channel. It wasn't the English international channel. The target audience was mm. Chinese people abroad. So for this Chinese learning channel, oh, effective, okay. effectively, the target audience was kids 
of Chinese abroad who, you know, maybe spoke Chinese at home, but were kind of missing some vocabulary. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Heritage learners, right? So the, the show was me and the female host would kind of walk along and talk about these tourist things that we were seeing. And then all of a sudden we would stop and turn to the camera and say, this word that we just used and then explain it in English and then have like an example sentence of the word. So it was a, you know, a very bizarre show. The biggest audience ended up being old people in China who were kind of traveling oh, vicariously really? through us. Yeah. There's a lot of cultural aspects, I expect, if you're going through all the different counties, all these towns and all these places yeah, around. People the were really excited about it. We had a very vibrant older audience. <laughs> <laughs> wow wow and so also, also you got the young kids like, or the old people right it was broadcast at 5 a.m 1 p.m and midnight so you know oh, the, okay. old people get up really early they're at home during the day <laughs> and it was actually really good at that point I, I spoke pretty well but it was a really good learning experience it was really good for my language because we had these scripts every day and had to memorize like you know a 10 or 15 sentence dialogue and then record it and then memorize another 10 or 15 sentence dialogue and then record it every day. I highly recommend it for, for learning language. You know, have someone try to film you do a dialogue again and again and again. We did a kid show with puppets for oh. our company that was, it was in collaboration with Hunan Television here. Yeah, that, that was fun. <laughs> You're pretty much a big deal in China. So well, not, I'm big in China. <laughs> I would say, I, I, I would say, you know, no, no, not a big deal. The, 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 I had a complicated relationship with doing the television stuff because, I mean, for instance, I actually did dress up like a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> for oh for, I mean, for, it was it was Sun Kong. it was like the monkey king it was when we went to oh, yeah. Shan, which is where the monkey king is from in journey to the west everyone from the crew sort of dressed up as different characters from journey to the west and we sort of reenacted a scene from it so i was always a little bit sensitive to being sort of like the foreigner on tv mm-hmm. you won't be one of the like the token white guy yeah but i realized that somebody has to do that and it's important for people to see normal people in the media. And I always thought, well, this is a chance for Chinese people who might not have much exposure to foreigners to see, oh, we're more alike than we are different. I still feel there's some ways in which there's tensions right now and and tensions about being a foreigner in China. So I've done a lot of stuff recently with Douyin, sort of like TikTok videos and things like that. The way I sort of think about that is as a cultural communication opportunity. So it's a chance to, on the one hand, say that there are things that I can't talk about, but I'm also not going to just sort of say what people want to hear. So there's very much an appetite now in China for people to say, oh, China is so wonderful. And oh, look in the West. They don't even have WeChat pay in the West. And oh, things are so inconvenient. And actually, life isn't really that great over there. That's sort of appealing to what people want to hear. And I think I can provide a different perspective from that and provide sort of what I think is a more balanced and kind of honest perspective. That is needed. I mean, it's always good for everyone to have some sort of balanced perspective, right? Well, John, something I also want to kind of hear about a little bit from your experience is that you know, you've obviously achieved like a high level of Chinese. And, you know, for a lot of people, you probably might be listening to this to kind of say, like, how did you actually like kind of get to that level where you just, I mean, you're good enough to be on TV, you know, that type of thing. That's a level that not everyone obtains. So I just kind of hear from you, like, what do you think really made that difference from you from you went from like, okay, I'm competent in Chinese to like, wow, now I really feel like I have a level of fluency, I can handle myself. There's something to be said for I did start early in the sense of, I mean, I was here as a 17 year old for a few months, and I certainly didn't become fluent in that period. But starting early is helpful. (laughs) I think if there's a specific thing I did, you know, going back to that experience with my host brother, of him really jumping into that experience of I think I'm making this sound right. And you're telling me that I'm not doing it correctly <laughs> and really jumping in and say, what is going on here? And so I think at, a, at an early point, really jumping into that and really kind of 
accepting that, whoa, I'm wrong, <laughs> but also having the confidence, having the drive to be like, I'm pretty sure I can make this sound eventually. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I can make it in a way that is not just understandable to you, but sounds right to you as well. I think something that was really helpful for me, and maybe it was specific to my situation, but was really jumping into pronunciation. I probably wouldn't have even called it pronunciation at, at that point, but just, a, I want to make this sound right. Because I think one, there you get a lot of rewards for doing that because you gain a lot of confidence and you also get a lot of positive feedback, particularly if you're in China, you get a lot of positive feedback and it's easier to do it early on. I think with any language, once you get to a point where you end up using features of your mother tongue to sort of approximate sounds and approximate grammatical structures in your target language that make it so you're able to be understood, but you end up kind of using them as a crutch. Once you do that, it's not that it's impossible to change, but it's a lot harder to change than yeah. in that early period when you're sort of first figuring things out. Yeah, I call it a fossilization. You kind of make in like a bad habit or bad practice and it may be hard to change down the road. Yeah. So I think just the idea of just really jumping in in the beginning. So I want to get the sounds right. And part of that is going through that stage of realizing, whoa, I can't even hear this sound. Or, well, I think I'm making this sound, but I'm not making this sound. And really jumping into that, I think, is really effective. One other thing I would say is I think particularly for a language that, like Chinese and English, the two languages are pretty far apart. I think spending some time in the country with the goal of just learning the language and like, that's the thing I'm doing right now. <laughs> I think that's incredibly effective. And where a lot of people get stuck with Chinese, it's just kind of a hobby. And what happens is it falls by the wayside and you end up not really putting in the time to do it. So I think with a language like Chinese, it's different enough from English that it comes with a sort of an extra challenge than something like French or Spanish. Really spending some time in the country, you know, you're not just coming to experience life in the country, you're coming and this is what I'm doing is I'm going to really focus on language. I think that's very helpful. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I've noticed people who had that opportunity, that period, it, it kind of establishes maybe a stronger base moving forward. Well, like, I guess going back, if you had the chance to do it over, like, uh, what would you do differently, if anything? So the first thing that comes to mind that, that I would have done differently. So that first time when I came here and I was able to stay here for a semester and that feeling of leaving of like, wow, this has been incredible. And I really want to continue this experience. I know that I want to learn more. And so the one thing that I thought about doing at the time was actually taking a gap year before going to college and coming back for a year and, and doing the same program again or doing something else in China for a year. I kind of wish I'd done that and sort of really jumped in after that first experience and had a more deeper experience after that because it ended up being, you know, coming back for a summer and then coming back for a year. But what is it? It's like, the, the, you know, you want to strike it while it's hot, kind of. I sometimes wonder, like, what would I have established in that year? But on the other hand, the relationships that I made in university, I probably wouldn't have those relationships. And some of those are some of the most important relationships in my life. And I might not have met my wife in the same way, <laughs> you know, so, so, so <laughs> yeah. you know, just like a lot of those, I, it, from a life decision perspective, I wonder what it would have been like, but I, I wouldn't do anything differently. Yeah, it's kind of like the Robert Frost poem of, uh, you know, there were two roads that diverged in the woods and I took the one yeah. that was less traveled and that made all the difference. Yeah. yeah. So I guess from a language perspective, I think that would have had a very sort of solidifying effect on language. And I think I would have been in a better place than I am right now. And the other way to think about that is I wish I had sort of kept up learning over the years. I mean, my Chinese is at a level where it's definitely good enough, but I'm frustrated that I don't read as much in Chinese as I used to. I don't write characters as much as I used to. And, I, and so I wish I'd sort of once I got to the level of life is fine and I don't have any real barriers with language, I wish I'd still kept it up as a, a practice. And I can still do that. Mm. 
Yes, yeah. And that's the thing about it is that you can always learn Chinese. Exactly. Well, well and, and my and my son is, you know, he's five years old. And so he's starting to, you know, write some characters every day. So here we go. It's a great opportunity for me to be an example <laughs> and also uh, <laughs> pick up my own studies. Well, hey, John, this has been really insightful. I appreciate you sharing all these perspectives with us. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks. It's great to chat. I really love what you guys do. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, MC, host, presenter, waiter, maitre d', concierge, butler, and that one gal named Serena. Please subscribe to our podcast and share it with a friend. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. You can also reach out to us on mannercompanion.com or mannercompanion on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or TikTok. Apologies to John Cena. We just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is Kaiser Kuo, and interview editor is Dominic Edgley. And I'd like to thank our special guest, John Gordon, and of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Passon. See you next time.